listening to the New Roots Community Radio Hour. Welcome to the New Roots Community Radio Hour. On the last episode, Baird introduced us to Jane and Paul and started discussing their world of permaculture in the Pacific Northwest. They will continue that discussion on this episode, delving into what Paul and Jane's eight-acre permaculture homestead looks like, how they got to where they are implementing permaculture, while pulling back the veil on the colonizing aspects that remained within that education. We kind of talked more about the social and cultural aspects of permaculture. Mm -hmm. Um, But now I kind of want to get back to the basics of presently, um, since you guys are sort of the second generation, as we'd like to think, what is permaculture and what does it look like on your homestead? Yeah, okay. Uh, most of the time it's really pretty. Sometimes it's pretty ugly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, any, any, I hear, I, I hear the breakdown of that question and what it looks like on our, on where we live is super integrated, like the physical expression of sunflowers and kale and pigs, it cannot be separated from the social relationships and the the all the the so-called invisible stuff of you know a shared having a shared economic pot we have a we have a bank account for the for the queen mountain homestead and uh we are paying for seeds together and if we have to buy hay for mulch or bedding for the animals and we are paying for that together and we are working alongside each other mm-hmm. many many times within a week whether that's preparing food or managing yeah. the pasture or working with the animals taking um, care of each other's kids because the so paul and i have a have a toddler and then my sister and brother-in-law live here with us they live and we share a house so they have a, a teenager and a, and a middle schooler and so there's a lot of uh hanging out with each other's kids so that you know we can go and uh say i'll pass sammy off to his uncle so that i can uh go out and harvest a bunch of tomatoes to bring them back and and process them and can them with my niece and nephew so yeah it's it looks like a lot of ever expanding garden space which we work all by hand we don't use tillers or any machinery in the garden except for a weed whacker. Yeah, we don't actually own a tractor at this point and probably won't be getting one. Um, And before getting too much deeper into what we're doing, just want to make it clear, you know, I I think on the one hand, it's kind of easy to to demonize some of these academic conversations or academic pursuits, but, um, you know, even the, the, the concept that we could buy a piece of land and own it, is uh, perhaps antithetical to a perm to a permanent culture Mm -hmm. um and that's kind of a whole set of academic concepts and a whole history involving kings and lords and wars and all this other stuff that um 
and you, colonialism and colonialism and all these things and so you know i think it's maybe easy to kind of poo poo some of that academic stuff but at the same time like the 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 very money in our pockets the economy we all exist inside of um all kind of fall under that umbrella of of an academic pursuit and i think it's really really important to not um throw that sort of baby out with the bathwater mm -hmm. um but yeah other other pieces of our land so we have eight acres um and we like jane said we have uh two families living here and then also another friend of ours who lives on the land and helps out uh probably four acres of that is under cultivation and about four of it is um native and fairly healthy woodland uh the the land itself had been pasture probably since the 30s as far as we can tell maybe even a little earlier um and so we're in the process of uh transitioning out of sort of this hay field tractor hay field into a uh silvo pasture system where we're ranging pigs and chickens um on the grass in the spring and summer and uh and then keeping those animals under the fruit trees during the fall and winter um and so that's kind of uh the largest of our our operations um and then we have about a half acre of vegetable garden where we produce um a lot of uh our own family's food uh staple crops such as dry beans and winter squash um a lot of uh tomatoes potatoes potatoes um onions and garlic and such uh and then um yeah and then kind of moving towards more independent systems we uh we recently had an instance where our we lost water to our homestead and it's been a fairly wet summer so that wasn't such a big deal but um learning how we can kind of be a little bit more self-sufficient and uh with some of those fundamental needs um i think uh you know in terms of what it looks like too like jane said the you can't separate the plants and the cultivation and the land from the people so you know uh this morning our two-year-old woke up and started shucking dry beans out of their uh out of their pods and just like shucked up a, a cup or two of dry beans and that was while we were making breakfast and then he showed us and he was like look i, I made these beans i was like whoa cool <laughs> could work do more um but you know there's a lot of like projects we are always in some sort of project of, a lot a lot of repairs we were given some recliner chairs outside chairs for our wedding four years ago and paul's kind of had a thing against them he gets really irate with the uh, industrial and industrially designed products that he thinks are made to be disposed of and so even though he has been fighting with these chairs for four years when one of them broke he was like it cannot win i will repair you and so <laughs> i think intentionally ugly repair <laughs> on it but a lot of things are repaired quite beautifully uh you know our our mower broke a cable or what was it you and yeah. so my nephew and, and paul fixed it with a home done piece so a lot of uh, a lot of projects like we're always planting something or harvesting something or fixing something or um yeah we put a lot of value in sort of uh trying to be as involved with our built environment and our, our built-in planted environment as well as um as well as the the forest around us there's uh quite a bit of green space around us that um you know we're coming into mushroom season so we'll be shooting 
finding the shaggy parasol um, and probably more oysters uh, and other such mushrooms. Um, and so, and then we're trying to uh, cultivate a degree of habitat and space for our neighbors, such as um, owls and raptors, uh, amphibians, um, snakes and snake habitat. We had a lizard in our house uh, as a refugee from the smoke. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so trying to find ways to, uh, yeah, take some of those projects and, and get um, into this bigger, this bigger context and, and not just sort of our, our own singular, singular piece of land. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, Paul and I really believe strongly in talking about economics and money because it's like so key to anything and mm -hmm. It doesn't get talked about much. <laughs> taboo. Uh, yeah, there's taboos. There are cultural taboos around acknowledging uh, the flow of money. Anyway, so another part of what it looks like here day to day, uh, you know, obviously pandemic has kind of changed the rhythms a little bit of workflow. But uh, my sister is able to work from home. She has a therapy practice. Uh, she's a licensed therapist, therapist, and so she has clients who come and meet with her on site. And so part of the the daily rhythm typically is that that there are these uh, just a steady stream of folks folks throughout the week coming and doing therapy for an hour and then hanging out with the pigs for a little bit before going back to their lives. Uh, my brother-in-law. He he uh, he works off site, and so you know he 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 goes, and then he comes home, and in the summer he usually gets back from work and wants to decompress, so he hops on the mower and mows the pasture, and uh, and then and then plugs back in, and uh, you know Paul, we, we're in this what some people refer to as a peri-urban zone, so we're on peri being you know like periphery, we're on the edge of the urban, uh, we are in city limits, but it but it's still this real kind of rural feel to our street. Uh, so so we're, Paul's able to bike to school. So he's coming and going on the bike, usually during campus right now, working from home. And uh, and we got the kids at home too. So anyway, there's a lot of coming and going. And I, wor I work out in the community on people's properties. And, um, and then also, you know, we have, uh, we have friends who are plugged in uh to different things in the community and, and they'll come by with scraps either from their own kitchens or from what we have quite a few friends who work at the food bank and obviously the, the food that's donated is first prioritized for for the people of the food banks but inevitably there's often food that that doesn't get passed through and is going to be spoilage so they uh, always make sure to send it to our pigs so that it doesn't have to just go into the green waste it goes and, and is eaten by some hogs so yeah a lot of uh um, well and the so the economic studying the economic thing just important to acknowledge that there is um we all have these outside these jobs that are, that we're working and we're we're um we're we're trying to because when you're getting established on a site even if it's even if it's on track to be as a a more permanent sustaining self-sustaining site 
it's not going to be that for a long time. And so there's going to be inputs from outside in big ways, uh, if it ever gets there. Um, anyway, and then, uh, and then the other part of the economics for us is not so much about making money off of the land as reducing our need for so many inputs and so finance uh, fiscal inputs monetary inputs and so um so yeah so it's not so much that we're we do sell a little bit but it's more about uh buying less um you know yeah and that go factors back that's the food and that's also repairs and just doing being able to do things ourselves building ourselves um Yeah, um, and Paul, my friend Philip, who is in one of your classes and a big fan of yours. Um, We're a big fan of Philip's. <laughs> pass that on. Oh, good guy. Good we guy. Yeah, we miss him for sure. Um, he was mentioning that you said in your class that in permaculture does not is not good for the economy it does not mesh with the economy in its idea and in its basis but mm -hmm. i guess a two-pronged question can you talk about that and how that functions in our economy but also why it is so necessary that we widespread farm in a permacultural way or uh what did um what was the term of res resilient way yeah sure um our economy is all, our economy is just one kind of economy yeah our economy is just one kind of economy um there's a really fascinating book uh by marcel mouse um who that jane turned me on to and i read recently and um it was about in indigenous and pre-colonial economies everything from uh polynesia to uh the pacific northwest to ancient rome and looked at the way that goods were exchanged and it, uh, if nothing else was um you know it was a uh, mouse was an anthropologist with a with an interest in economics um and if nothing else it was just a really fascinating look at different ways that uh cultures managed and exchanged goods and resources and values and how that kind of played into that social those social constructs and such um but a, a, a summation of the book was that uh, or it was the title of the book is called the gift and it was about gift economies and it was an interesting one because the summation of the book could be um it was a uh a, 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 what do you call it a, a turn of phrase from um polynesia and they said that if if everybody gives more than they receive, then we'll all be all right. Mm. And at the same time was, um, you know, doing research on capitalism and, and uh, working through Marx's uh, Capital Volume 1 uh, through David Harvey's courses, which I highly recommend for anyone interested in, um, in econ. But um, the uh, a definition of capitalism was a an enterprise that was trying to get out more than it put in and i think in, a, in an interesting way those are two really concise and oversimplified but really fascinating kind of approaches to to um exchange an exchange which is gonna happen no matter what 
but the difference between you know kind of this uh, everybody puts in more than they get out versus everybody's trying to get out more than they put in so kind of the exploitation versus the uh, the gratuity wow. um, and so yeah our our you know fast forward uh, however many years to our current situation and our our economic system is kind of the nth degree of um, how much can one person get out without putting as much in and um, and I guess in terms of the you know the big picture obviously we have unprecedented disparities in, in wealth and such and and it's kind of maybe the this truth kind of actualizing itself you know there's that stat the the billionaire class in america made 830 billion dollars over the past uh you know covid pandemic um and you know most americans are out of a job and looking at uh you know potential um well many americans 20 million americans are looking at um yeah no no job in the future so I think in the in the macro context, like obviously things are are working really really well for very very few people, um, but in the micro context of like our place, uh, you know, we keep on bumping into this. And and what's the most cost effective method to do something? Or what is you know people always ask like what's the uh, you know what are the is it is it worth it? Um, and if you take something like uh, you know we've already talked about repair and repair being a uh, kind of counter counterproductive in terms of our gross domestic product um every time i every time we pay four dollars to fix a 200 dollars appliance as opposed to simply um trashing that and buying a new 200 dollars appliance we we aren't contributing to gdp and we're and we're lesser americans for it um uh and uh, no, on another dimension, um, I think the exchange and sharing of work is another interesting one. Uh, we've had a number of people come and help us, and we're very appreciative of their help and support. Um, and I remember a conversation with my parents where uh, I was talking about uh, some friends who were coming to the land and, and working with us. Um, and my parents made some comment about, oh, like, it's great that you can get that free labor. And the comment really irked me, and I kind of and it was a good impetus to kind of explore the relationship, but um, you can look at it from a number of different dimensions economically. So our friends come and help us on our land. They planted a greenhouse full of tomatoes and peppers and other goodies, and they came and harvested a fair amount. Um, so on the one hand, we could be charging them for access to land and access to the water and the various different resources. On the other hand, they could be selling uh, their labor in service of uh you know sort of the bigger picture of our space so they should be charging us but what ultimately happens is just a you know a verbal exchange between friends and sort of um community members where we don't pass money back and forth and instead we kind of agree that this you know through conversation that this is working well for all of us and you know in a sense again we aren't contributing to gdp um, and I kind of keep coming back to GDP because it's kind of the hallmark of uh, economic well-being in our in the in the macro conversation. So, um, but in in a lot of different ways, what we're doing here doesn't really make sense economically. You know, I could earn, and Jane and, and Liz and Ryan could all earn uh, vastly more money in the time that we spend, uh, you know, growing our own pigs. Um, we could earn vastly more money by charging clients for our specialties, but it's weird because the value, you know, we spent, uh, 
we spent a good 15 to 20 minutes a very entertaining 15 to 20 minutes just sitting around looking at our chickens yesterday and coming up with names for the new chickens and saying which ones we thought were the were the most beautiful and such and so um you know does that count as value and entertainment uh and so it's really a, a strange conversation and i think in as much as our contemporary economic system is so fixated upon gdp um and and what's happening in the nasdaq or the s p 500 or any of the different stock exchanges uh you know what we're doing here is not contributing to that macroeconomic picture and then in a very different context um when you consider things like home economics or you know even the 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 roots of the word oikos uh and onomi sort of the um the management of the home uh from the from the greek origins there uh you know we're we're practicing good home economics uh to the best that we can and how much can we produce for ourselves so that we aren't um kind of contingent and dependent upon these bigger systems of questionable integrity yeah that's a really good um concise or sorry very simple way to put it um Matt, which would you um because as and i think everyone is feeling this with the fires and the smoke especially on the west coast um a sort of ticking time um, clock. So how could permaculture in a larger sense contribute to um, this ticking time? You're talking, you're saying like, how do we do this? How do we do it now? How do we do it now? Because shit's cray. Mm -hmm. And how, does, um, how important would you say permaculture is in that fight against climate change? Yeah, I don't think it needs to be called permaculture at all. Um, you know, it's stuff like, um, indig as you referenced earlier, indigenous, uh, the indigenous people of, of the West Coast have, have been fire keepers. They have known how to manage the the wild spaces um or you know the, the yeah they've known how to manage the land um and have have been talking about fire ecology for forever and there are academics now who who have been like oh yeah you guys do know what you're talking about and increasingly people are talking about land management and it's it's yes it's climate a shifting uh, you know hotter and drier and more intense winds and all that and it's the it's it's the fire ecology so i mean just like yep we should wake up and start paying attention to people who who know how to manage the land and we should do what they are telling us to do and what they have been telling us to do and we should burn responsibly and intelligently the so land that, and the water and the air and all the different things there were there were systems in place all over the world um and even to to include europe you know i think it's really important to understand that there were indigenous cultures in europe who were displaced by empires yeah. and who were forced off of their land in this kind of cascading mm -hmm. uh this cascading dis displacement of people of which were just the most current um whatever real realization of victims of um but yeah there were there were cultures all over the world who were living in spaces 
for generations, um, for hundreds of generations and doing these practices. And, and I think it's important to understand. And I think the sense of urgency is definitely uh, relevant. And at the same time, it took us generations to get into this situation. Um, and the situation being climate change, but then also like a complete alienation from our material existence, right? Uh, our, the majority of our culture does not know where food comes from, does not know where electricity or energy comes from, does not understand where water comes from and, and can't value it because of that sort of uh, um, obscuring. And it's not their fault that they don't know. It's part of this system of displacement and alienation. Um, but I think the urgency is, is important and relevant. And at the same time, it's really important to understand that it took us multiple generations to get here. And the way that we view it is that it's going to take us multiple generations to get out of here, you know, and if our two-year-old can grow up and have, um, a family and, and turn into a grandparent, uh, and if, if those new individuals have sort of a, a relationship to land, and have a relationship to place that that defines a big portion of who they are then we're then we're moving in the right direction but i don't think we will have arrived um anywhere near a permanent system um uh, for probably another what two three hundred four hundred years and and even then um an interesting paradox is that across all of these different indigenous cultures that we might identify as a permaculture uh, they have an incredible spiritual reverence and acknowledgement of change and that it's like, oh, everything's time is cyclical and it's always changing, but it's always the same. And so it's kind of hard to define like when, you know, when would we arrive at a permaculture in a sense versus um, when would we hit some sort of stable rhythm that embodies all of the, all of the necessary changes. Okay. And then I wanted, so I do think it's really important um, in terms of like what we what we can do and how everything that Paul said is yes true. It's going to take time and what have you to get into healthier cycles and systems. Um, and it's it just knowing enough about human psychology when we are afraid when we're feeling insecure. Uh, it's really easy to contract to go what we know to go to what we know rather than to be in a place where we're able to be connecting either with each other or with land and uh, and so it's there's there's a concern for me around an increasing sense of peril and how you know does that does that motivate us that it does that inspire us to to some degree it does but I think it also can leave so many of us feeling really shut down and it, it's not a generative cr creative space where we're able to find um, healthy new ways, which is again, come, I want to come back to what I referenced before, which is kind of my new, the new thing that I'm really excited about. Um, for me, it's new. Or I've been thinking about it a lot more in the last year because I've been thinking about, we, you know, we're, we've been on our site for four years. I want to start connecting and having more of a sense of community resilience, not just um, like with the larger community. And so I'm thinking at, at about the neighborhood scale, you know, the, even the city of Bellingham is too 
too big for me at this point. I can't really wrap my head around it, let alone Whatcom County and, or the US. <laughs> um, but I can think on the neighborhood scale, I can start to think about creating connections with people. And this thing of disaster preparedness being a way, and there are, I just want to cite a couple, um, there's in, in Washington state, but, but throughout the country, there are cities who are using the map your neighborhood program. And that's uh, one to check out. And it's, it's not explicitly about climate disaster or climate change or why things are happening, why people feel perhaps feel or legitimately are in more vulnerable situations. Uh, but, um, but what it does is it, it, uh, highlights, you know, okay, these are some of the things that could happen where, whether it's fire or earthquake or economic, um, disaster. Uh, and there's, a, there's a much longer list. Um, but, uh, pandemic is on that list. <laughs> pandemic is on that list. And so what it says is, Hey, these things happen, you know, it's, it's, it's more a matter of when it happens and and then how is your region how is your community how is your street able to respond and so it breaks it down into this very tangible approachable piece where what you what you have to do is go and meet as many people on your street as possible and begin forming a relationship with them and for me i think that that kind of work is it's like it's just enough beyond our comfort zone to be stretching us and growing us uh but it's not too huge and overwhelming it's not like i have to figure out how to solve all the wildfires which i personally can't do but i can think about okay this is where i live let's talk to the neighbors let's figure out what do we do if there's a, a fire breaks out on our street or is burnt, there's a fire burning in in our um, in our county? How do we how do we respond? How do we make sure that everybody's okay? That everyone has uh, access to clean internal inside air while the smoke is really bad? Um, and then how do we begin managing the wooded areas around us as a community? And so building a sense of security, which which then allows for more creativity together. And, and problem solving and idea sharing and kind of um, yeah learning together. I don't I don't think that we can solve any of the problems that that we're faced with right now without building relationships with other humans um, and, and connecting with land is is in there, but con connecting with each other is 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 equally important. And so yeah, that's. That's one, we have to have some sense of like, okay, of hope essentially of like, there is something that I can do and it has to be, it has to be digestible. It has to be something that we can actually process versus just like the massive global situation and po like massive political situation, which is way outside of our scope of influence. Yeah, such a beautiful point and such a good, I think, way to make it bite-sized and also make it um, uh, relatable because it's, you know, whoever you go to, that's a specific thing to talk about and 
is an understandable thing to talk to a stranger about. Yeah. Um, the worst case scenario. And I think you're right in expanding on beyond that. There's those, um, there's those connections that are like bridges that are now open and who knows what they can go from, from there. Um, like you said, how you and your friends have an exchange of, you know, they come and access the space and get to harvest some food and, but they also help you set up that space. Um, and I know in my area and the unit above me, um, the person who lives there works at a nursery. And so they have a lot of access to different greens and vegetables. And so they'll leave us some tomatoes and then we'll leave them a loaf of banana bread that we made um, as a kind of thank you. And then it kind of goes back and forth. Yeah. I think connections like that are really special and also not very taught in right or um even just i think in a way i know that i've been told just as a female that you should be some as to a degree suspicious and protective of yourself and um and that is very necessary but i think what it lacks is um causes a kind of fear for uh and stops you from trying to reach out to people and meet people and build your yes yes Barrett. and that is getting back to what paul reference kind of like the the indigenous populations of europe like part of what was practiced say in the middle ages was this like reign of terror on on women just the witch hunts is, is what it's called but you know there's a lot to it um and how that persists you just referenced like feeling afraid and it's not just us you know obviously like in this country lynching and all kinds of forms of oppression and the real physical risk that is threatened towards people um results in disconnection because because there is legitimate reason to be afraid and then to pull away and to isolate to try and self-protect uh, that yeah it's 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 a real tricky thing because there's in so many ways it is as you said you do have to be cautious because there has been real um threat and and damage done uh to to individuals and communities and the way to create more security and safety for individuals and communities is to to risk some degree of vulnerability even if it's just sharing food with each other to open up and trust and build connection and to be less of an individual isolated in a big scary world and be an individual who's a part of a community and who's a part of people who know who you are and who you can trust and that's where we start gaining power that i think has the capacity to sort of um push back against this uh these bigger systems of industrialization and capitalism and neoliberalism and all these big academic concepts that are that are permeating our lives um whether we want them to or not yeah and that that kind of reminds me of um how connection to people and connection to land are very interwoven and like um the headline that i saw that um i don't know if you guys saw it, that 19 
black families purchase 90 acres of land to create like a safe haven for black people um now that is such a community building thing and you know is what tried to happen in Tulsa and then um, was subsequently attacked and burned to the ground but um how that like you said that as much as we want to connect with the land and change things that can't happen without connecting to people um, mm -hmm. first and getting people who feel safe around each other um, and who can rely on one another. And um, for that, I really respect. Um, yeah, I guess this leads into a kind of, a, if we can find a more synthesized way of saying um, what can we as individuals do in this setting that um, this will be playing in a valley in Colorado and could be playing elsewhere, but um, what we as individuals can all do, maybe through a lens of resistance or resilient farming or resilient community. Mm -hmm. um, I think in, in a big way, and I've mentioned it already, and I'll mention it again, but um, understanding that this is a, a much, much bigger thing than, than our lives. Um, we've been kind of exploring the concept of re-indigenization and, um, and what it would look like. And, and in a sense, like the, you know, in the, the conversation of colonialism, it's like there's either the colonizers or the colonized. And, and it's kind of this weird polarity, but like, how do we kind of start to resist that? And how do we, how do we kind of find a foothold for the resistance to industrialization and mechanization and everything like that? And it's interesting because it's often uh, set up with indigenous communities being sort of their, the resistance, but where does that leave folks like us who, you know, somewhere in our history were displaced from our, our land and we didn't necessarily ask to be, um, born into this situation but uh and what what does it look like um across generations of that and so i think in this big picture we've been kind of toying with this concept of re-indigenization and reconnecting to space and understanding that it's going to be a long transition but that the 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 bigger goal perhaps less so than like fighting industrialization or fighting against this thing is is instead turning towards these spaces where we live and it, whether it's a valley in Colorado or islands in the Northwest or, um, you know, uh, anywhere in the world, but really starting to um, connect with that space and let it define us, let it define our daily habits, let it define um, our careers, um, let it define our practices and, and, and develop our culture in the way that it had before, um, modernity and colonialism and, and, and the industrial forces kind of pull, pull, push those things apart. So that's sort of maybe this really big picture idea. And then in the day to day, I think there's a lot of different ways to approach it. Um, and as Jane said, uh, you know, connecting with people in your neighborhood is really important. A big misnomer I find is that um, there's this idea that a permaculture homestead could be like a self-sustaining, isolated thing unto itself. And I think that's a, a, a common misconception with people who are just getting involved or have just heard about it, but it's really, really um, 
off base and that the more we start to understand about community resiliency and sustainability, it's uh, how deeply can we integrate and become interdependent with that community. Um, so everything Jane said about connecting with neighbors and connecting with people, um, we even went for a walk the other night and we're just uh, commenting on people's yards and their plants and, and you know, had four or five pleasant exchanges with neighbors uh, on, on their beautiful, the beautiful plants in their yard and whether they were edible or not. And Barrett's asking like specifically about the rural context and I understand obviously in a rural context, you're not, you don't have a bunch of neighbors, right, all up on top of each other on the street. Um, it's maybe spread out more, but all the same, it's a different scale, but all the same principles apply, you know, and, uh, and people in rural agricultural settings have, have had, and I'm sure some of the people who are, who would be listening to this would have stories of borrowing tools from each other or, um, you know, yeah, like just keeping track of each other if someone's sick or needs an extra hand, just kind of like a lot of that, just taking care of your neighbor's concept is is a big one. Um, so just want to direct yeah. it back again to the to the rural setting. In an, in another, so in the, the sort of microcosm of an individual's, you know, things to start practicing, um, in, in, in the context of uh, familiarizing ourselves and, and becoming more um, uh, involved with our local uh, spaces. Um, I think a really easy one that maybe gets overlooked is uh, learning native plants and learning your local ecology. And that one's pretty low barrier. You can check out a field guide um, from the library and take a few walks around in the woods or in the fields and start to um, start to get a little bit more accustomed with the with the common characters in your area. Um, also, a landscape guide is kind of nice because you can see plants that are uh, being cultivated in a in a less or yeah plants that are being cultivated as opposed to the the wild indigenous plants. Um, and then if if you if you're looking for an actual practice that's pretty much guaranteed to to develop your sense of connection with the land, the the sit spot practice from wilderness awareness and yeah teachings um yeah. where you just find a, a place that you have access to whether it's a public space or a private space where you develop a regular uh, habit of, of sitting for some set amount of time throughout the seasons to be able to observe you know not just through books but just just with your own senses to sit and to take in what's happening around you and kind of sink into the, the rhythms and the patterns and see how things change and then also see how inevitably your own awareness and consciousness changes as you sync up more and more with a physical location. Mm -hmm. That's a, yeah, I think a really important practice for sort of, um, you know, respond it, or cultivating connection to space and then also kind of fighting against this uh, alienation that we have where it's like we don't know, you know, we, we just can barely pay attention to the weather. We don't really use our noses. I often teach students to smell more and we do a lot of smelling in my classes and I think it's a fantastic learning tool. Um, other things, you know, growing food is obviously a, a great one but comes with its own challenges. I think repairing stuff is 
a really uh, fun and empowering practice, being able to take apart something, whether it's a simple mechanical tool or um, something electrical, uh, looking up online, you know, how do I fix my computer? Um, but being able to sort of take something apart and fix it and make it work again is a very edifying and empowering sort of practice. Um, and then, uh, you know, just kind of learning more and more about our social environment, learning more about our built environment, learning how to fix your own plumbing. You know, if the toilet is running, pop it open, have a look inside, pull some, pull some chains and lift some levers and see what's going on. But a, a lot of it is sort of, uh, you know, we, so much of our culture kind of happens in these abstractions and like, you know, the, the toilet is a great example where it's just like stuff goes away and we don't even really question how or why until it until it stops going away and then we call a special person in um versus yeah spending a little bit of time to tinker with it even if it's not broken tinker with it and see how it works paul actually has an amazing book called how the how way stuff, things oh, work the way things work and and it's i mean i yeah it's just like so hilarious and approachable and amazing technical drawings of just about everything um mechanical and yeah it, that's a cool one that we look at with our toddler <laughs> so i think on on the bigger picture you know connecting with your social community connecting with your biological and ecological community connecting with um the you know sort of our built environment and some of the the daily material resources that we use and then finding ways to um interface with them that feel uh mutually beneficial you know and caring for a plant caring for an animal fixing a tool um fixing your car working on a bike oh bikes are a whole other amazing part of this equation um but uh there there are lots of points of entry and it just kind of depends on what your particular context is and what your particular interests are um and then sort of uh yeah following following some of those impulses and opportunities yeah and like you were saying about bikes i know that um, in Bellingham, how we have the hub, which is um, a bike shop where they can put together pieces to make a bike that you would like for however much money. Um, but they also have community stand time where if you've gotten a bike for them or you have access to just all the benches and they will not fix stuff for you, but they will tell you how to do it. Mm -hmm. and do it yourself because they are. And that I think is another um example of it's not very economically viable um because they want people to be independent um and they just want people to bike and be able to bike and if they are able to take care of their bikes themselves and work through those problems then people will bike more and so i think um maybe if people are financially able to look out for places like that those i think there's more movement towards things like that, even though it's not the most um, fiscally driven place. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that kind of just put another thought into my head because I, I think about that as like coaching, which I try to do with people around town as much as possible who start out as clients to try to give them the skills so they can do more on their own. But um, the, the concept of mentorship, so there's a lot that you can do on your own, but then also just like getting back to this idea of trying to find people to mentor us, whether that's with cooking or gardening or repairing things or whatever it is. 
yeah and i think that's a really great perhaps point to end on is just that 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 then becomes sort of the definition of culture is these older generations passing practices down to new generations and, and empowering new generations with um skills and knowledge and information um and the the mentorship thing as well as that sort of uh, a community of of support and community interdependence i think are some of the the bigger goals to shoot for in this kind of pursuit of perhaps re-indigenization um and then you know along the way there's all sorts of small small skills to pick up and everything like that but um it's it's really uh as we understand it and see it and as we're trying to live it uh it is going to be generations of work to kind of get back into sync with the with the the world around us yeah and just having i think the mindset of community and also um of realizing gatekeepers of like say your plumber is the one who has information about how your plumbing works so they are sort of a gatekeeper to that aspect or um and then in that same mindset of you want to you and your community want to become your own gatekeepers um, <laughs> or not even gatekeepers but just be able to get all of that without asking others for it like I just tried to do a house project of putting up some pegboards to hang some pans. And despite my dad and my grandpa letting me pay, play with power tools when I was young, I had a really hard time with it and could not figure it out um, until I had my friends, Jack and Philip come over and help. Um, and Philip kept saying, you know, it's strange how there's just some people who know things. And like you said, specialized versus general generalists. Mm -hmm you grow up and just like don't learn these things and are expected to just ask someone else to do it um and how i think that movement towards being able to do things for yourself is so beneficial in so many ways one of the ways i found out yesterday is just building um confidence in yourself yeah mm -hmm. yeah and it's very empowering when a lot of other things that are going on are so out of our control and, and I think disempowering. Yeah, yeah. And relating it back to the bigger picture that <laughs> the world is truly on fire in physical ways and metaphorical ways. Um, but to be able to feel that um, agency in little ways, I think, yeah. is for mental health aspects, but then also to just kind of get that ball rolling and mm -hmm. yeah um well i don't have any other big questions that i'd written down is there anything else you guys want to add in or thanks for reaching out it was a lot of fun having this conversation and we look forward to uh hearing what you what you put together yes totally i will send it over your way when it is all done awesome thank you Guys, have a great rest of your day. You yeah, too. and say hi to Philip and Jack and the gang for us. Yeah, we're <laughs> We missed.